Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit as part of a healthy and balanced diet. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. This podcast aims to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of grey when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being, hopefully helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. Of course, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to share today's conversation with the incredible Vicky Bellman. Just a heads up that Vicky and I recorded this before Christmas when we'd just gone into another lockdown, just in case the context doesn't always make sense. In this episode, Vicky and I talk about body image and what body image work is and the hope of healing our relationship to food and body image, especially for folks in larger bodies. This felt like such a powerful conversation when we recorded it. So I'm so grateful to Vicky for this and I hope you will take a lot from it too. And now for a little bit about Vicky. Vicky is an integrative counselor with almost 10 years of experience, offering trauma-informed, weight-inclusive care for people, primarily in disordered eating, eating disorder recovery and body image work. Vicky works in private practice at Freedom To Be Therapy and also runs her own practice, Concentric Counseling, offering a health at every size approach to mental health work. Vicky enjoys a swim in the sea, feeling embodied in herself, and helping others sit and accept the hot potato that life throws at them. Vicky lives in the UK and is currently training to become a certified intuitive eating counsellor. And she also has a new project called A Modern Practice that aims to bring therapists, counsellors, and coaches together to create a sustainable practice that helps not only patients, but also professionals. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to introduce today's incredible sponsor, Organico Candles. Organico Candles was founded by Natalie Dill based on her love of aromatherapy, holistic well-being, and candles. Organico Candles are vegan, organic, and handmade with love. They come in all different scents infused with essential oils to provide calm, inspire, energy, relaxation, and stress relief. The candles all come in beautiful tins and have an approximately 30 to 35 hour burn time. A while back, Natalie sent me some of these beautiful candles and I love having them burning in the evenings when I unwind. I find the aromas really soothing and even had one on my desk during the winter months to bring a bit of peace and calm to my working space. I genuinely couldn't recommend them more and they're also such lovely gifts. Organico also have a charity candle of which 20% of the proceeds go to the Walton Centre charity based in Liverpool. The Walton Centre NHS Foundation Trust are the only NHS trust in the UK dedicated to neuroscience and treat a range of conditions affecting the brain and spine. They also provide internationally renowned pain services. As well as running Organico candles, Natalie also keeps busy as a full-time nurse. Please do head over to organicocandles.net or visit Natalie's Instagram at Organico Candles. Right, let's get to today's episode. 
Hello, Vicky, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm so well. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And thank you so much for giving up your Friday afternoon to come on. And I know we were just uh, talking before this and you said that this is going to be your last sort of working thing of 2020, which is pretty exciting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is closing out the year for me work-wise, which is a really lovely, feels pretty celebratory actually, to be having a nice kind of connection before coming to the end of, uh, end of work for the year. Yeah, and a strange year. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, Vicky, I was hoping that we might be able to start with perhaps you giving a little bit of an introduction about you and the work you do with concentric counselling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so I trained as an integrative therapist, so I use lots of different models, I suppose, is the main is the first thing and put them all together to try and create something really bespoke for each client. Um, I started my training uh, about 10 years ago, I think, a um, little bit less, about nine years, and um, set up Concentric nearly four years ago um, and really wanted to create a practice that was very authentic and um, I hope inclusive and I hope dynamic and I hope really affirmative for clients so that's my kind of goal with the work that I do. Um, I started in general practice and then really quite quickly did extra trainings on trauma and and saw how that segued really um, really intuitively into working with food and body more specifically um, so many of my clients were using that as a coping strategy that I just turned some of my training towards that. Um, so that's the focus of my work now mainly is, it seems to be mainly trauma and disordered eating. Wow, um, thank you so much for that. And I think uh, thinking about starting training over 10 years ago really shows just how, um, just how kind of much there is there and in terms of, equipping ourselves with with the skills to kind of be doing this work and, mm. and supporting people and um so exciting that you also started your practice four years ago too and Vicky yes. I'm curious if it feels comfortable with you about perhaps some of your own experience in, in coming to this work yeah absolutely um so I am a fat person I live in a bigger body, I have a bigger body. And I think it's pretty rare for a fat person to live in our culture and not have a diet history and not have a have an experience of having a kind of dysfunctional relationship with food and with body. Um, so that was my experience that I grew up in a world um, and you know certainly in my late teens and early 20s that wanted me to look differently and I wanted to conform to that um, so it was definitely necessary for me to have done my own healing work and I did a lot you know when I was training having weekly counseling was one of the best parts of the course actually because I had to turn over so many of my own 
issues and work through them and process. Um, and it just gave me such an empathy and a foundation for people who have an experience of not feeling at home in their bodies. Um, Vicky, thank you so, so much for sharing that. Um, and um, I'm hoping and know that there will be so many people that perhaps can relate to uh, particularly what you described as this culture um, that can be oppressive and, and hostile to, to mm. some bodies. And yeah, yeah, very much. Just so uh, grateful uh, for individuals such as yourself um, doing such important work and providing space and, and also um yeah just just being hopeful that this work is possible and that healing to food and body image is yes. for all bodies even though yeah. the culture can make that really challenging thank you i mean yeah i think your use of the word hope is really um that's really important to me i i think i my intention actually is that my body and my comfortableness in my body in sessions is an act of hope for my clients um, that I hold the hope while they don't currently currently have very much hope um, for body healing and body recovery um, and that actually I can be a, a signal of that as they're going through their own process and until they have taken up their own hope and, and belief in their own body. Wow and that must be so powerful to be in the room with and for people to um have that experience of of being with and and seeing some of that energy and i i imagine that that might have been more, more challenging over zoom with with having less of that in the room um yes and no i was working on zoom before we had the lockdown and um and the kind of current circumstances so i was already quite surprised by how much body work can translate through a screen because really it's me being in tune with my own body and facilitating the client to check in with theirs and um that has been as possible online actually and that's brilliant because my work you know i work with people across the country and outside of the country in other countries and it means that we can keep that kind of potency and connection even online and oh that's just so exciting to me i i so agree and and that that's so great to hear and i guess again the power of the body and and, and checking in and being in tune exactly as you said vicky if it's all right with you i just perhaps love to touch on what we mean by body image you know before we even start thinking about body image work what, what mm. do we mean by body image yeah yeah so good question from okay for me it is how do i see myself more more importantly than how i'm seen by the world how do i see myself my image of myself comes from my core outwards rather than from society inwards so for me restoring body image is very often actually about restoring how we see ourselves and focusing on that more than how we're seen by other people because i think that that's a real distraction from um a, a kind of benevolent view of ourselves yeah i really love that 
um, way of saying it. And I guess it's almost like having this subjective experience of ourselves from the inside out rather than perhaps that mm. objectified experience from the outside in, which is, I guess, what diet culture and, and world systems and eating yeah. disorders would, would rather us have this, you know, yeah, completely of ourselves. Objectifying and projecting, you know, what someone else thinks about my body is really none of my business because <laughs> um, it's outside of myself. Um, it's, it becomes my business if they start treating me differently or start treating me badly. But then, as you say, we're talking about systems and structures. But how I see myself can remain intact after, you know, after healing work, um, restoring our image of ourselves. Yeah, I really like that. I'm almost feeling some sort of act and for anyone that, um, and, and you will know this far better than me, so please feel free to be like, you have got this totally wrong, but almost this sense of um, in acceptance commitment therapy, we might mm. have thoughts coming up and perhaps asking, you know, is this helpful? Is this helpful? And when you were saying what other people think um, is sometimes not my business, well, it is when it manifests in world systems that... Mm oppress certain bodies but I guess on that kind of smaller scale and, and maybe I'm, I'm getting into a, a hole here so please please jump in at any time is this helpful to be so engrossed in what others think 100% I completely agree with you I think you know a lot of it for me is about drawing our awareness to something turning it over in our hands looking at it from different angles okay what do we think about this how do we feel about this and then do we want to keep it? And if it didn't belong to us in the first place, there is something so powerful about giving it back, you know, giving our negative thoughts of ourselves back to the society and the culture that created it, because it was not inherently ours. When we're born into this world, we're born, certainly feeling neutral but actually I'd imagine feeling pretty positive about ourselves because you know life is good life is, yeah. you know um so I would imagine we feel pretty positive about ourselves until it is uh interrupted and commodified and commercialized that actually it makes people a lot of money if we don't like ourselves mm, yeah yeah, I actually, I, I love sometimes when I'm speaking with clients, thinking about, um, you know, squishy babies that first sort of find their feet and sort of this marveling at finding these feet and, and the way in which they discover their bodies and, and are in their bodies. That can feel so alien to, you know, how we may yes. feel when experiencing a really challenging body image day. 100% it's just uh you know I think we do lose connection with the good times in our body and the times where we feel safe and we felt comfortable and we felt joy and we felt curiosity you know finding our feet for the first time that's just a really curious act um so yeah I think reconnecting with some of those lived experiences is a real wonderful antidote to the the projections from external sources 
yeah absolutely and something else that's just coming to mind and, and again I, I might be going off completely on a tangent is really this sense of being in systems and perhaps on uh, on an individual level kind of being in these sites of shaping like how did mm-hmm. family or, or our close community impact the way that we might feel about our bodies what kind of comments did they make about bodies what kind of things did we observe as children what kind of comments did they maybe make about our bodies and then outside of that maybe we've got things like institutions and the way in which they might have um, influence the way in which we feel about mm. our bodies and, and all of these layers that go right out to sociocultural factors which really perhaps helps to helps to understand that that the way in which we may think and feel about our body goes beyond us as an individual and is shaped by all these different sites around mm. us yeah and how we can, I think yeah, yeah. jump in Oh, I was just saying, I think that having that context is is a really vital part of healing. It's a compassionate part to say, actually, um, a lot of this did not come from me. And therefore, I can have compassion to the people that gave it to me because they're existing in the same systems. Um, but but actually, this is this is bigger than just me. And therefore, it's bigger than just my body. Um, and I think that is where the social justice side of this work is actually really vital you know like i care about body positivity on an individual level like i deeply care that people should have the right to feel positive about their body but principally i care about how all bodies are treated in our culture um which has such an obvious hierarchy for which bodies are acceptable and which aren't and i want to see safety and equal treatment for all bodies um and you know stigma free living and for me that's the that's the core of of body acceptance body respect um body sovereignty um that it's it's about this is where it is about how we're seen by the world it's the system that is wrong here not our body yeah, I, I I love that, and I think um, I you you put it in in such a, a powerful way um, about kind of reshaping, and I I love the sense of of something that I read recently, which is the sense of body resilience not necessarily being about kind of surviving in in these systems and just like surviving in them, but it can also be about actively shaping back through some of these movements or or just in the different conversations that we might be having on a smaller level right like you don't have to go out and be a huge activist but maybe you have different kinds of conversations with your children or maybe you actually go into their schools just to say that you know you don't want your child to be weighed at school and all of these different um, things can can shape back and we can start to make changes in a culture that we don't feel like aligns with our values or offers dignity and respect and totally I think that's really true. I think it's actually, you know, you're so right that it doesn't have to be a public revolution. This can be a very personal revolution. But I do think that it does really impact the way that we see the world. And, and to me, that's, that's a good part of recovery. It's a, it, it can be a, an overwhelming part as well, for sure. But actually, I love what you say, reshaping the system. You know, we have to recognize that we're 
really the goal is for us to reshape the system rather than reshape our own bodies. And it doesn't have to be loud, but there is a revolution that happens in our own thinking and in our own corner of the world. And I, I love that. I love the potential of that. Yeah, I love that sense of a revolution in, in our own thinking and perhaps even mm. own revolution in, in the way that we might speak to our own bodies. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I also feel like it's really important, um, um, particularly for, for me to mention coming at this from somebody with a lot of body privilege, how that can be very different for different individuals that perhaps come under one or, or several systems of, of oppression in these sites of shaping mm. as well. And mm. particularly from my perspective, not to overlook that as easy work that you just wake up tomorrow and you know decide that you want to be body positive yeah um, and and i think that that's really important for us both to say actually you know like i come from my own positionality as well where i have a bigger body but you know i'm able-bodied i'm white um i'm educated i come with a with my own set of privileges and so yeah i'm limited by um I want I am I'm accommodated in those ways and therefore I'm limited in my understanding sometimes of quite how difficult this is for people who exist on different kind of margins of oppression and at the same time you know it's on me to do the work to get us get closer to understanding to empathizing and to building change yeah and thank you for sharing that. And I think it comes back again to fighting for um, those small acts of, of, of change again for all bodies, having that goal in mind for all bodies. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think you can do this work really without acknowledging that it is, it exists within other oppressive frameworks phobia um, exists within other structures so you know the thin ideal is also the white ideal is also the straight ideal is also the able-bodied ideal and the educated ideal the middle class ideal you know so all of those systems are all supporting each other and i think that's such a vital part for 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 professionals actually to acknowledge that it's not just about our understanding of disordered eating, it's also about our understanding of oppressive frameworks. For me, mm. I think that's a really important part of the work that we do. Um, it's that slimness is upheld by other oppressive structures and I don't see how we can dismantle just one of them. So our work is equally valid in our anti-racism work that's an equally valid contribution to um the fat phobia mm, yeah yeah and and i think it's so important to especially be what's well, always important to be having this conversation but it feels particularly poignant um off the back of all of the black lives matter uh, movements mm. this year thinking about mm -hmm. um the relationship between weight stigma and uh racism and I wonder if that is um, 
perhaps a good segue into what we mean by weight stigma. And, and Vicky, I was perhaps hoping you might be able to uh, share your understanding of that. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, so I think every single client I've had in a bigger body has experienced weight stigma um, from colleagues, employees, teachers, students, family, um, doctors, of course. Um, and I think those prejudices, you know, on the face of them, they appear individual, you know, the, the intrusions to our body sovereignty. Um, but actually, it's structural, it's built into our systems um, that certain bodies are stigmatized. And 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 the fat itself is stigmatized you know um and so that is i think a lot of my work is firstly being seen as a a person brave enough to tackle my own prejudices the the um the stigmas and the the um the ways in which i could contribute I have to do my own examining of that and be able to dismantle old belief systems in myself. Um, first of all, I kind of have to put myself out there and say, look, I, I, I'm working to, to give back all of the stigma that I have maybe brought in from, from our culture. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it kind of spins my head that, that some professionals, some uh therapists you know still see it as legitimate that bigger bodies therefore mean unhealthy um and that it's kind of acceptable to stigmatize people if it's for their own good i hear that a surprising amount oh <laughs> um yeah it's still it's still horribly established and so that feels like a, an important part of my work is is being the change i want to see standing in that gap and saying not not here not with me I love this sense of how that ties up with what you said earlier about holding something in your hands examining it getting curious about it and then potentially giving it back mm -hmm. and I think you you also touched on there the weight stigma in the medical model and how it's somehow justified um, under this sort of guise and health. And I thought what was really interesting there is how you perhaps alluded to it, not just in where we might think about it in terms of somebody going to their GP, but also perhaps for somebody in therapy with a psychologist and mm. weight stigma that, that might come up in, in those settings as well. Yeah, the amount, of, the amount of pain I've seen, avoidable pain of people in bigger bodies going to professionals and being sent away and told to lose weight, you know, um, having suggestions of weight loss plans from healthcare professionals, including mental health care professionals. And to me, it just, it doesn't compute. And yet, and, and you know, and I have, and I have a world now of colleagues and, and um, companions who believe the same as me, who see the world in a kind of similar way. 
And then I'm reminded, oh yeah, actually, yes. There are people who still think that it's okay when someone is struggling and saying, actually, I think I have a, a problem here. And the response is always, have you considered losing weight? Mm, yeah, it's, I, I certainly in, in clinic as well, see some of the, the um, harms of that. And I just think mm. it so overlooks um, so many of, of just kind of the ways in which we should be, I'm struggling with, with the words here to get it out, but how we, we have come as a society to put so much focus here, um, but also in the ways that that is inherently stigmatizing just as is without even considering the, the other factors that go into that. And I don't know if I'm, I'm explaining that very well, it makes sense, um, but certainly my, my take on it. And I think there just needs to be so much more, particularly in medical schools and medical training, but perhaps even in psychology and other areas of, of health as well, um, where there is more in terms of challenging this weight normative approach where everything is just put down to have you tried to lose weight? Yeah, absolutely. It just seems to be the cul-de-sac that so many people go down. And it just, um, it's so dismissive of, of the, of the um, complexity and the humanity of of everyone we see if they are just reduced to well, how much do you weigh if i'm just reduced to how much do i weigh it just completely discounts everything else that contributes to who i am and how i am and what my health is and you know it it, it uh, seems so so obviously reductive um it just, i think it just shows how extremely powerful diet industry is that it is quite obviously so reductive and yet we're still having to battle this absolutely and i guess there we were we're thinking about um how powerful the diet industry is and and weight stigma in the medical model and a weight normative approach which i guess is this mm -hmm. just have you tried to lose weight and you know i'm using quote unquote um normal bmi is healthy i'm curious if um you would be open to explaining perhaps what we mean by a weight inclusive approach or even starting to think about um health at every size mm. yeah i mean yeah for me weight inclusive is really just that for me weight inclusive is um and health at every size is you can have health at every size and also you can have less health at every size um so it's just dismantling this rigid connection between weight and health um so and i think that's what health at every size does very well um the description i like the most is that it's just an alternative model of health um so it and i think that's its kind of biggest strength um in that it offers us an alternative to a weight obsessed model but although I, I also think that that's one of its challenges is that it's still focused on health attainment and for some people that is not possible and that is also okay and we don't stigmatize people but for for less health you know that's what i want to be seeing um because of course there is a lot of health stigma as well as weight stigma 
um, yeah, so I think health at every size, I think my, my supervisor, um, Hilary Kenovi, she says it's, um, which I really like, she says it's like the professionalism of the fat liberation work that was started in the 70s. And I, I, I like that um, description. So I think, again, that's its greatest strength, um, that it brought these ideas to a wider audience, but also maybe it lost its edges a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, really love that sense of, of it being the professionalism of the fat liberation movement. And I also think it's so important what you said about it recognises that, you know, health might not be top of everyone's priority list and that we, yeah. it's about respect and dignity for all bodies, regardless of size and, and where they might be in, in health. And certainly the way that I also like to, to see it is as almost a social justice movement that makes accessing healthcare equitable for everyone, mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. health being something that you have to pursue. Yeah, 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 very much. I like the, the you know, I think that's a really important focus is that it's less about individual, actually more about structural. Um, and so that aligns with the way that I see things too. Um, I think it, it is just that. I think for some people, health can't and won't be the priority and that has to be legitimate and that has to be um, respect, respected um, in the same way that low weight isn't and won't and shouldn't be um, everyone's priority. Um, people's lives are contextual and they are deeply personal and so to have this kind of one um, standard of health and waste is unachievable. <laughs> mm, yeah yeah and and I think it's um, it should be acknowledged more frequently as well yeah. and yeah. I think um, just if it's all right with you kind of just segueing back I think something that we really see quite well, at least um, so much emerging research on the detrimental impacts on health and well-being or, or a sense of, of um, kind of mental well-being is body dissatisfaction and mm -hmm. um, negative body image, you know, saying that it's experienced by about 50% of adolescent girls and by 16, you know, 60% of, of girls have been on a diet to try and lose weight. And just, mm -hmm. you know, it really makes me think, what, what is going on? Yeah, absolutely. It's so early. I feel like they used to be kind of, maybe they didn't actually, I'm kind of thinking, or did there used to be kind of age boundaries? I actually don't think there were, um, but I think it's become more, uh, in some ways it's become more obvious that, younger children are kind of targeted for an understanding of weight being higher weight being bad but in some ways it's also become more sneaky and um and yeah i i hear and see it with um with younger children and that's quite often where i work with parents and enjoy working with parents on a doing some healing with their own relationship with food and body um and b um having a place to safely talk this out so that they can imagine an alternative because they think we have to imagine together the change that we want to see so that we know how what we want to build 
Um, but I often say to parents, it's, it's like when they come to this work, or I say this actually to a lot of clients, when they come to this work, particularly when it's a kind of generational hurting, um, I say it's like a hot potato has just been passed down from one generation to the next. And you're just, you know, you're tossing it between your hands because it's so hot. You're not wearing oven gloves. It's hurting your hands. So you toss it to the closest person and, oh, crap, that's my children, you know? And, and then the cycle perpetuates itself. And it feels like people come into my online practice room now and they put the potato down in between us on the table and they say, okay, what are we going to do with this? And we let it cool and we give it back to, we put it where it's supposed to be. I, I, I absolutely love that analogy. I think it, it sums it up so powerfully. And I particularly like what you said about being able to, to have that space with you, Vicky, where you can have a safe space, I imagine, um, again, with somebody that offers a sense of um, non-judgmental, curiosity and, and also that hope that we spoke about to be able to not just have to just you know get rid of the potato but actually to explore it to understand it to yeah. see where it came from to see the impacts that it may or may not have had on us how it might affect us differently to others um, if we perhaps have um, body privilege or, or we don't or there's other yeah. things that come in and then get to have the autonomy and agency to decide what we want to do with it. Mm -hmm. And that's the key, actually. You're you're so right. There is that actually what I'm what I'm creating is, is more of a brave space. Actually, it's not so much of a safe space because actually my privileges mean that I can't always create that, and um, and that's that's okay. That's my limitation. Um, but I am committed to creating a brave space where I do my own work and um, explore myself. Um, and then I can kind of more safe, more safely then facilitate um, a brave space for other people to do the same. Mm, I love that um, sense of, of brave space. And, and I guess what's coming up um, for me um, in terms of, of, I know something that I see and, and others bring up is that perhaps we can do some of that work and, and we decide to put the potato back somewhere just to continue with this metaphor yeah. um which is actually yeah. quite a nice one for summing up something that's um not very nice um systems yeah. depression but then you know we go back out into the world and and maybe someone's like here have this potato back and they throw it back <laughs> into your hands yeah. and you know I'm, I'm curious perhaps um if you could speak to that the sense of maybe doing this work but then continuing to operate in in a culture where it can very much feel like we're swimming upstream mm, mm. well i guess that's where we like we're going to extend the analogy to say that the kind of creation of resilience in therapy um and in your work as well as is um maybe like the creation of oven mitts you know so if someone does toss us this actually we have the, we have the tools then to be able to handle it safely and say, actually, that's not mine. I love that. Equipping ourselves with, with some of those tools and mm -hmm. um, perhaps also move, moving into, I know you said that there were um, adults that you work with, that, that the parents or, or other clients, and I'm curious perhaps, and I know that it is extremely hard to do on something like 
a podcast recording because this is extremely intimate and personal work as you have touched on but perhaps anything you might be able to share in terms of resources or ideas for individuals out there that would like to embark on their own body healing work and in terms of some some really tangible things perhaps yeah yeah I so I just well I just wrote a blog uh, on my own website um which is a kind of starter guide if you like to kind of exploring um a more satisfying more uh gentle relationship with food and body and for me that starts with self-compassion and doing some work on self-compassion because diet dieting and disordered eating is is a frame is a frame of mind as much as an action you know diet culture wants us to talk meanly to ourselves diet culture wants us to berate ourselves when we get something wrong it doesn't want us to ever fail or be bad at something or to be a work in progress. Um, diet culture wants us to be perfect. And so for me, I think a really good starting point is developing some self-compassion and a margin of, I call it like a margin of humanity, which is, another term really I suppose for a margin of error that we can allow ourselves to be less than perfect we can allow ourselves to be constantly evolving um so that's really kind of my first step is resources on um self-compassion and um and humanity um if it's I do, yeah if it's all right with you, I loved everything there. And I was just wondering if perhaps, because um, I know that for some individuals, because it's been a little bit diluted by cough, cough, wellness culture sometimes, if you might be able to just explain a tiny bit more on self-compassion and what perhaps a self-compassion practice might look like. Well, yeah, I mean, so self-compassion, um, so I love Kristen Neff, obviously, she does amazing work about self-compassion. So she's a bit of a go-to if people want to learn more about it but for me it's it's about for me it's about collaboration with ourselves so I talk about body collaboration and really I mean there are lots of different parts of us inside ourselves and they are all trying their best I think almost almost ex almost exclusively trying their best um, and for me it's about getting everyone on the same team and working to listen to the hurt parts, even though sometimes that's really difficult and we want to reject the hurt parts. Actually, it's about kind of bringing them in and saying, what is it that has happened to you? What do you need? Um, and how can we start working as a team to kind of move forward in a more, more, integrated way a, a gentler more loving way um so that's for me self-compassion is starting to be compassionate to all the different parts of us even the difficult parts you know the inner critic people talk a lot about that but most of the time the inner critic is trying to keep us safe and really has our best intentions at heart just goes about it maybe in a less helpful way so 
it's about being compassionate to even the challenging bits and 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 gathering those parts in rather than trying to push them away so that is a big task i don't deny that um but it's a really moving one i think you can tell like as i talk about it i find it very moving that um that we're kind of gathering up these parts of ourselves and inviting them home i just i find the potential of that so beautiful um so that's a that's actually quite an expansive view of self-compassion i think but it's for me it's it's a really beautiful and valuable one does that kind of answer your question <laughs> I, I i absolutely love that and and almost this sense of of um a homecoming to yes. all of the the different parts that that live inside of us um yeah. that perhaps we might have had a more thought experience of a relationship or with um and that um integration or, or cohesiveness or, or yeah. some kind of um team collaboration and teamwork it's teamwork yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just being on the same team being on team vicky being on team isa you know it's just exactly. all working for, for yeah yeah no that 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 was um such a, a a powerful um explanation so thank you and i i think i interrupted you moving into something else that, that you were going to say as well um oh what was i was i going to say anything well i think i just would have said um that that is a process and so that's not something that happens overnight um but for me um it's a really valuable process and it kind of threads through the rest of the work you know there's other bits of work going on at the same time but you know, I think we often talk to ourselves, the different parts of ourselves, in a way that we would never consider talking to different members of our friendship group. Never ever. Even the even the ones that are being challenging at the moment, you know, because we all have a challenging friend and we still make space and time for them. Um, and we find ways to manage the relationship even when it's not in a brilliant place. And we aren't so practiced at doing that for ourselves. And it is a practice. So it's a kind of um, it's a practice to get into and to develop. It's a muscle to flex to develop self-compassion for ourselves. Um, and at the beginning, it feels really creaky and it feels really inauthentic, but it grows and it strengthens. It's lovely, really lovely. Yeah, and, and Vicky, I'm really grateful to you for touching on that sense of it being a practice and perhaps mm. um, at least uh, I like to think of, and I'm not sure what your thoughts are, but of even when we think about body image in general as this kind of really active ongoing work um, or even just intuitive eating, like these are active uh, processes that, that we can practice and get wrong and experiment with and uh, get a sense of. Um, but it's very much a practice and something active if, if that's something that somebody would like to pursue. And again, um, not wanting to force them anywhere. Um, mm. Uh, that comes with kind of time rather than just like waking up one day and having positive body image or being an intuitive eater or, or actually mm. reaching a certain weight and then suddenly being cured of, of all challenging body image thoughts, which we also yeah. know that kind of lie that diet culture sells. So um, <laughs> I'm really grateful to you for, for touching on that sense of, of it being a practice. Absolutely. Well, that is a diet approach to, to healing 
you know, to think that we're going to nail it and we're going to get it right and we're going to be, you know, it's a process and a, it is a journey rather than a destination. It is a practice. And I love what Evelyn um, Tripoli says about it being, for the most part, for the most part, which I love that margin of humanity mm. and that margin of, for the most part, we're going to be doing this because we're working on the same team now. But sometimes, you know, stress is going to invite us back to some old habits and we're just going to have to be aware, notice the flags and say, hang on a second, we're doing this different way because it actually turns out it's just so much more comfortable and satisfying. Totally. Um, so much wisdom there. Yeah. Vicky, I am just uh, conscious of... Um, the time. And I know that's something that we really wanted to speak about together or that I was really hoping to speak to you about, which is um, slightly off topic, but very much part of this discussion or part of a discussion around um, perhaps um, being in a body and habiting the mm. body, embodiment, is your interest in and kind of passion for um cold water swimming yeah yes yes it is my passion um and it's one that i've really flexed this year i think embodiment is the right word i oh my goodness <laughs> how, much, how much time do we have because i mean i could talk about this all day i find it so fascinating i'm, I'm fascinated by it and also i it's the whole experience for me. It's the complete spectrum of my experience. So I'm fascinated by it on a kind of theoretical level, like um, the kind of neuroscience of it. And also I don't care about any of that at the same time because I'm so deeply settled in my body. Um, I just feel so, such joy and peace in my body. And I feel completely in my body. So embodiment is the right word. I just, when I'm in the sea and it's so cold <laughs> um but it's I'm so I'm aware of the sea around me and the sky and the seagulls but I'm also aware of everything that's happening in my own body where are my feet where are my um you know where are my hands um are my hands cold um in terms of like you know proprioception like the, um, knowing where my edges are knowing where my body is in relation to the space around it. That's a very important part of cold water swimming, just in terms of safety, and to make sure I'm really attuned with what's going on inside my body. But equally important for safety and for joy is knowing what's going on outside of my body. So it is the real harmony of me in the world, and everything is all right, and I'm in the moment and in my body, and so deeply joyful it is just such a lovely um a lovely gifting to my body and to myself oh, thank you so much for for sharing your experience of that and you know it perhaps brings us right back to perhaps what we touched on at the beginning which is this subjective experience of our body of, of being in our body from the inside out yeah 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 you know, you, you, being in, in a body which um, is a vehicle to experience the world or, or that moment in, in the sea and nature and um, in all of its kind of beauty. Yes. Um, 
which is so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. This body does this. This world does not encourage me to be joyful in my body, to be wholly at peace in my body because it's a fat body. This world does not encourage me to feel healthy and to do uh, kind of health promoting behavior, you know, moving my body joyfully. Um, the world doesn't encourage that. So that's what I'm, that's what we were talking about earlier. I think about that personal revolution that happened when I just put on a swimsuit and went down to the beach and it should not be so radical. <laughs> Lord knows that, but it is. And if it is seen by the outside world as well, then that is absolutely fine by me. And that's one of the reasons I'm sharing that in my professional work as well. It shouldn't be so radical to see someone like me in a swimsuit feeling athletic and feeling like an athlete, but it is radical. And well, that's a space I'm happy to take on. Thank you so much. Um, it has honestly been um, such a privilege and a pleasure um, having the chance to speak with you and to yeah just really hear um all of your your knowledge your experience and and your wisdom and, and i'm so so grateful so thank you so much thank you um, so much it's just been brilliant really thank you um and i would love perhaps if you maybe wanted to share a little bit about where people can find more of your work and keep in touch with you or, or reach out um, if they would like to work with you. Yes, thank you. Yes, people can work with me online. So, you know, there's kind of really no um, barrier to that in terms of location, which is just wonderful, actually. Um, so people can find me at my website, which is concentriccounseling.com. Um, people can uh, find me on Instagram. I love being on Instagram. Um, they can sign up to my mailing list on my website at the bottom of any of the pages. One of my projects for 2021 is a community for like-minded professionals who want to create something progressive. And I'm so excited about that. So any folks who want to think up and join my mailing list, find me on Instagram and find out more about that. Amazing. And I will link to all of that in the show yeah. notes. Well. lovely well vicky i will wish you um a fantastic evening uh you can all work done for the year and yeah just a massive thank you again and um i'm sure i would love to have you on for another episode in the future i would love that this has been a real joy thank you so much all right see you soon all right take care bye bye Thank you so much to Vicky again for this insightful conversation. I especially love the metaphor of the hot potato and thinking about holding space for it before passing it along to future generations. It ties in really well with what Evelyn Tribbley said in the first episode about intuitive eating being a way to end the legacy of diet culture in our own families and how powerful this is. If you haven't checked out that episode, I highly recommend you go back and give it a listen. I also love talking about wild swimming at the end of this episode as I have been loving some of the Lidos being back open in London and how invigorated and embodied I feel in these moments. 
Thanks again, Vicky. And don't forget to follow along Vicky's Instagram at Concentric Counselling for more. Also, another shout out to today's sponsors, Organico Candles. I will see you all again next week for another episode of the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast. And please don't forget, if you love this episode too, please drop us a five-star review on iTunes so more people can find us. Have a great day and I will see you all soon. Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson Nutrition. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit in a healthy and balanced diet. I absolutely love supporting my clients to find freedom with food, some peace in their bodies, and to free up space for what really matters. Whether that's plans to start a family, or to have more energy and brain space for relationships, hobbies, passions, or travel, or just to enjoy that slice of cake without a side of guilt. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. I want to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of gray when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being. I'm going to be interviewing experts and just downright legendary human beings, fighting the good fight against diet culture, and helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. I want to show that it's never black or white, but 50 shades of gray. Just an important disclaimer that this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it.